following presentation is a Bernanke and Krauss production. <laughs> you are so beautiful! <laughs> hey, everybody. Next round's on us. The city of Albuquerque, in the heart of New Mexico and the land of enchantment, lies a community home to a cinematic universe that's full of drama and suspense. In recent years, the once peaceful community has seen a surge in illegal activity, thanks to the work of a shady lawyer in the making, a chemistry teacher with a newfound identity, and the heart of a cartel seeping through the underbelly of the city. It is in this community where we have come to watch the character study of Better Call Saul unfold. With the gift to gab and a smile you can't forget, the evolution of James McGill to the beloved persona of Saul Goodman, attorney at law, has captured the interest of millions of fans across the world, making us hold our breath in suspense over the course of this perilous path. This is the story of not just one, but several characters, each on their own morally compelling journey. This character study is just one of the reasons we enjoy the cinematic world Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould have created, and we hope you do too. I'm Joseph Bernanke. And I'm Alex Krauss. And this is The Truth Is How You Look At It, a Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad podcast. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to another installment of The Truth Is How You Look At It. Today is our season one finale, and it's our 10th episode in our new podcast series. I'm your host, Joseph Bernanke. We're recording from Winnipeg, Manitoba, and I'm joined by my co-host, as always. Alex Krauss, always a pleasure to be here. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, we're, we're excited to bring you the season one finale of Better Call Saul. The episode we're covering today is Marco. It debuted April 6th, 2015, and it was written and directed by Peter Gould, very instrumental man in both series, of course, with Breaking Bad as well. He wrote episode one with Vince Gilligan, and the second one was a solo write. Um, he's basically been Vince Gilligan's right-hand man. He's a genius writer with a great sense of storytelling and direction for not only Better Call Saul, but, of course, the previous series of Breaking Bad. And the two have worked together a long time now, and they're working together on season six, which is currently in production right now. Uh, before we get into today's episode, we're going to have a pre-episode discussion here. Talk about our first season. You know, this great uh, series, you know, that we've started here. And um, we're going to focus on Jimmy and Mike, where they were in the beginning of our first episode, uh, to where we see them now at the end of the season, um, before getting into the rest of today's episode. Um, Alex, how much has Jimmy grown from the first time we see him in the court um, defending those three hooligans uh, <laughs> till we till we see him now driving away from Chuck's house at the end of episode nine. I think he's grown as a character and uh, his situation as well, right? So we see him working on very small time things to begin with, but things quickly escalate beyond his control at times, such as the in the desert in the second episode, as well as with a whole bunch of new clients that he's found over course of the season he's had a wonderful time with the uh, uh in elder law and other situations which he was also forced into even the kettlemans he handled quite well i think and yeah we continue to see him in very interesting situations here he's built up a brand um you know over a course of a very short period of time which is pretty interesting to see um he's definitely grown a lot as a character and 
it's interesting how the writers through almost every episode we've had a flashback of some sort we get a chance to see him in his past in Cicero you know in Chicago and the slipping Jimmy you know um, obviously it escalated quite to a point with his brother where his brother still thinks of him only as that kind of shady way of living you know from the past con artist today's episode is going to touch on that quite a bit talk about our thoughts um, of course as another series regular, Mike Ehrmantraut, played by Jonathan Banks. Where have we seen Mike evolve from the beginning of the series? He was very much a side character to begin with. Uh, the troll under the bridge, he didn't have much story attributed to him. But uh, just after the first half of the season, we get an episode dedicated solely towards him. And it definitely expands um, upon his character. And we get to see some of his backstory some of the people related to him. We get to see Stacy. We get to see um, Kaylee. Kaylee as well. So, yeah, these people who are very close to him and very important, as well as we get to see some of the work that he gets in, uh, dragged into as well. So, in order to help his family, he gets the help of a veterinarian who enlists him in some work. And we get to see the very first case of that. And we'll see some future ones. But. Yeah, and he's grown as a character too, for sure. I think um, his story has sort of wrapped up a little bit, whereas Jimmy's is left uh, open-ended to this point, as Mike's dealings with the cop has already been over and done with, yep. whereas Jimmy's uh, situation with Chuck is left unresolved. I think 5-0 was one of the best episodes of the first season so far for people who might be new to the show um, it was almost a standalone episode dedicated to Mike, but if considering the fact in 50 minutes, basically, they were trying to wrap up a whole portion of this guy's life back in Philadelphia as a character, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, Mike has a, a dark and kind of tragic past that's kind of brought him here to Albuquerque. Uh, and now, yeah, as Alex said, we're starting to see where new lines of work are Getting him as he kind of feels there's maybe a little bit of an onus upon him to keep providing for Stacy and Kaylee. Um, and yeah. Uh, yeah. Well said. Like his past does follow him here, but it gets resolved and then he continues to want to help his family through the work. And I, I think going forward too, I singled out these two characters because Bob Odenkirk and Jonathan Banks do a great job of interacting with each other and playing each other's characters. Um I think some of the strongest moments I've said before on the series is when the two of them have to work together. Uh, you know, we see that with Jimmy being Mike's lawyer, Jimmy asking Mike, can you uh, help me get the money stashed away from the Kettleman's? Um, you know, as we go into season two, season three, etc., when those moments when the two of them do end up seeing each other again, we won't talk about what that is, but just know that uh, they're great moments on the show and I hope there's more uh, that we'll be able to talk about in the future. Um, so yeah, um, as we get into the first episode, I'm going to turn things over to Alex and uh, we'll go from here, guys. Hi. The uh, first scene of this uh, episode starts with seeing Jimmy's old partner, Marco, pulling a scam on some two youngsters at, over at the bar. Uh, he's basically bending with them whether or not uh, this bill can be moved from underneath the bottle and sure enough he does and get some money off of them but as they leave they're pissed about the fact that they got scammed and then enters Jimmy 
Uh, he's well received by both the bartender and his partner here. This is obviously in the past, as we can see by the gray filter. Uh, it's alluding to a flashback. And uh, Jimmy um, declines a round of drinks, even uh, though his partner orders some. His partner's astounded that Jimmy got out of prison and asks, like, how the hell did you get here? Did you pull one of your um, slipping Jimmy maneuvers and just slide out of prison? But Jimmy explains that the only reason he got out was due to his brother. He'll be on a flight back out of here to over to Albuquerque, and the drinks will have to wait for another time, as he's going to work at his brother's law firm in the mailroom. And he was, the only reason he's here is to say his goodbyes. His partner does not like this whatsoever and starts berating Jimmy on the fact that it's his voice but sounds like Chuck's words. Is this really what he wants? He questions. But Jimmy takes a stand here and admits he would have been screwed if it wasn't for his brother. This isn't Chuck's uh, forcing him to do something. This is an opportunity, he states. And he didn't lynch him into the job. Jimmy gives his farewell and leaves his partner rather alone and bitter in the bar. And that ends our first intro. Yeah, we, we get another flashback. Uh, I enjoy it, of course, is taking place in Chicago. Um, the first song on in the background is an all-time favorite of mine. It's Poke Salad Annie by Tony Joe White. Uh, guy is, was a huge number one back in 1969. Classic rock at its finest with a little New Orleans and Louisiana influence. Southern Rock. Its lyrics describe the lifestyle of a poor rural southern girl and her family and a crop that grows that they like to call the poke salad that you can uh, make into a nice uh, salad dish. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's my, enough of my rambling on the music. Um, it makes a great atmosphere for the scene, for certainly. It, it does. It makes it, it feel homey. They, they chose a lot of good music throughout the first season. Um, we could talk about maybe when we start into season two, but I like the line Marco has to Jimmy. It's like watching Miles Davis give up on the trumpet uh, when he sees Jimmy walk away. Um, I was going to ask you, Alex, how do you think Jimmy's friend feels at the end of this scene? Oh, uh, like I said, alone and bitter. Like uh, just the shot leaving him, the last one in uh, the frame. Just like this is his partner in crime, right? This is the person, his best friend, and also the person of how he gets his money, how he gets his kicks. And he no longer has that uh, personality beside him, carrying the whole uh, scene. So, yeah. Um, which ties into the fact I want to ask you: Do you believe his partner wanted him to stay more for the friendship, or more for the benefits that he uh, Jimmy brings to the table? I think I think it'd be both. I mean, the the two of them are pretty close. Uh, we'll see later in this episode where things go, but yeah, uh, Marco and Jimmy are pretty much best friends it seems like and i've even read online in discussion that marco's kind of like if chuck was jimmy's evil brother marco would be like his good brother you know? oh wow yeah and, it's, it's super close then yeah and, um yeah I, I think he's just upset that his fun part of his life is disappearing and maybe he realizes he has to grow up now. yeah just like jimmy says yeah um and what's your thoughts on jimmy viewing the prospect of this as an opportunity instead of a forced enlistment into I, I think when we see the flashback of Chuck telling Jimmy that he's in a lot of trouble and when Chuck's been sent to bail him out I think that was a staunch warning for Jimmy saying okay I've got to change my ways now and do what I can to get out of the hole and yeah, yeah he sees it as an opportunity he says he's going to take it and well 
as we were just talking about in our pre-discussion, we can see where that's got him now today. Yeah. He has to grow up and stop treating this as a game, right? Yeah. So he definitely develops, in my opinion, from slipping Jimmy from this point onwards to a degree. Yeah. Um, and this may be a what-if scenario, but we talked about crossroads for certain events in the past. Do you believe this was one for Jimmy here? What do you think would have happened for better or worse if Jimmy decided to stay? Of course it was a crossroads. He could have uh, had his brother help him out and he could have been like, no, I'm staying in Chicago. Um, if he would have stayed there, he probably would have kept doing what he was doing with his friend Marco. Uh, probably ending up in jail, possibly multiple times, who knows. Uh, and probably never would have gotten to the law practice. Yeah, so you so. see it as a downhill slope. Yeah. Yeah. You think, uh, yeah. Oh, hey guys, want to buy a Rolex? Whoa, whoa, hold on. How much for that cheap piece of crap? Look what the wind blew hey, in. Myrna. Holy crap. Jimmy, my man, I said you would <laughs> beat the rap. Hey, I'll go settle down. Okay, I'm in a rush. My brother's outside in the taxi. The meter's running. What, Chuck's outside? Tell him to pull that broomstick out of his ass and get in here. I'm buying it. No, no, we got no time. We're catching a plane. I came here to say goodbye. I was done. You understand? I didn't beat the rap. Chuck flew in and saved my ass. It's time to make some changes. Hey, listen to me. You're slipping, Jimmy. What do you gotta change, huh? It's time to grow up. Yeah, according to who, Chuck? The same goes for you, man. You wanna spend the rest of your life on that stool? I mean, come on, Marco, look at yourself. Jeez, his master's voice. I mean, what else is he gonna do? Marco, listen to me, all right? Chuck's not making me do this. He's given me an opportunity, and I'm grabbing it. Gee, it's like watching Miles Davis give up the trumpet. What? What does that even mean? It's just a waste, is all I'm saying. In the second scene, we're over at HHM Law Firm, and we're looking uh, above a walkway as Kim walks into frame and peers over the rails to see Jimmy sitting below. Yeah. She's a bit hesitant and takes a moment to think before walking down, and she nervously greets Jimmy. She uh, tries to be rather casual and probes Jimmy as to what the reason why he's here. And he lets her know that he's here to take the deal. The cat's out of the bag, and he knows about Chuck, being the one who's responsible for him never getting the position. She looks rather distraught upon hearing this, and Jimmy asks why she didn't tell him. Like, this is someone super close with him, out of everyone, he would have expected her to say something, right? And Kim replies, this will be good for Jimmy to take the deal and to establish himself on his own, but she never wanted him to hate his own brother. She couldn't bear that. So, uh, cutting from that to a meeting between Howard and Jimmy in the former's office, uh, they talk about the details of the case and how Jimmy learned about um, his brother being the one responsible. Howard takes a moment to let him know that there's never any personal hostilities, to which Jimmy apologizes for his words last episode. Can you remember what they were, Joe? Sorry for calling you a pig fucker, Howard. <laughs> I used uh, to call you Charlie Hustle, Jimmy. Yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> After the uh, two make up, Jimmy receives his $20,000 of counsel fee and the promise of 20% settlement in future. In return, Jimmy hands over a shopping and assistance list for Chuck, it will need to be taken care of. Um, as he said for last episode, he will no longer be the one taking care of him, right? This is his point onwards of dropping Chuck to a degree. 
Howard is outwardly flabbergasted at the realization Jimmy does this every day, but quickly composes himself to promise that he will get this done and get this done right. As Jimmy leaves, Howard makes sure to express that he always liked him, even if it was very much like a PR manner, but he, he says like, oh, remember when I used to call you Charlie Hustle, right? And then trying to end it on good terms. Kim and Jimmy both go down to the parking lot, and again, yeah, Jimmy apologizes for the mistakes made. Kim is very quick to forgive him and gives him a hug, you know, and they start talking about it briefly, and Kim states that Jimmy is quite very mature about the situation. He's looking at it rather objectively, and it's a bit of a surprise considering how emotional the uh, previous episode was. And Jimmy says there's nothing to let out. Chuck is a sick man. Yep. Uh, the Dalai Lama's got nothing on me. Yeah, that's, right, that's so a good line. Yeah. yeah. And so we cut once again to the scene uh, over to the rolling of bingo balls in the old folks' home as Jimmy starts reading them out while making some hilarious quips. Now, I just got to say here that some of the comedic writing here always has the potential for gold, my God. Such as the little things like, 64, oh, to be 64. Like, just uh, He always has a way with the old folks and just applying it to the relevant situation, I swear. However, uh, as he continues the bingo game, and with the rattling of the balls in the background, he slowly becomes more exasperated. The letter B kept getting chosen, and he's struggling to focus. After the third one, he suggests B, as in betrayal. After Benedict the, Arnold. Yeah. At the fourth one, he exclaims uh, B, as in brother. You can start to see where he's thinking, right? He continues to get more negative and is ranting on about how insufferable this place is and how could they stay here in Albuquerque. Hilariously, scorpions outside. Right? Yeah, it's a desert wasteland. Uh, <laughs> hilariously, some of the crowd is still trying to ask him, what's the number on the ball? As he's, Hey, you're yeah. going to read that number? <laughs> right? As he's uh, in the middle of his own meltdown here. As the sixth B is chosen, he's so wrapped up in his own thoughts, he starts to get off stage explains to this elderly folk about what a Chicago sunroof is <laughs> and starts again to detail about the story of how he defecated through a Chicago sunroof on one who wronged him. Chet may have owed him some money, perhaps slept with his ex-wife before she became his ex-wife, but mistakenly he did not know that there were children in the back of that vehicle due to the tint of the windows. Guy wanted some soft serve, I gave him some soft serve. <laughs> This uh, resulted in the sex offender charge that we know from the previous uh, flashback in a couple episodes ago. And he's an absolute wreck at this point, but continues to rant on. As he does so, he finally lets his thoughts and steam out a little bit here. He says, importantly, he's been, he believes he's been paying for his mistakes ever since that day. He gives all the prizes away for free to all the folk around, and he drops the mic and leaves. That ends our second scene. It's a good one at that. Um, it's interesting how the relation between what Kim says to him in the parkade and then moments later, I think it kind of catches up with Jimmy. And I think it just really speaks to the human character. Um, you know, it's everybody, if you go through a really egregious event, like what had happened in the previous event or episode with his brother, um, if you keep all of that emotion bottled up, eventually it's going to release at some point, And I think it could be a harmful way if you don't have people to talk about, if you have a problem in life. Right. And eventually we saw this spill over for Jimmy. Um, he basically start, he, he got anxious. He got uh, exasperated as Alex said, and 
he couldn't think of things to say for the letter B, and then he got six of them in a row, and then he thinks, okay, I've said this and that. Oh, and then he goes to brother, you know, and then he thinks about his, his situation in the home life, right? Uh, his relationship with his family, and yeah, yeah, he thinks about his past, and it all quickly goes downhill, you know. Yeah, no, I think you put that adequately. Like, he has a very difficult time processing it, and I think it's sort of one of Jimmy's weaknesses we see in previous episodes too such as when he went back to his office after everything went downhill and starts taking it out on the door like he doesn't process things properly and here where he had a chance to do it in a more healthy environment with kim he doesn't do it until later where he it he can't help but let it out right mm-hmm. in the middle of the old folks home so it's uh definitely a trait of this character not letting some of his emotions out to the last minute or until things get were, for the worse. Were you surprised when you saw that for, let's say, the first time when he had his breakdown in the old folks' home? I couldn't help but laugh at the uh, situation. I which, laughed. I, yeah, I thought it, it was funny. In which uh, just the whole thing transpired. The reaction of the staff was also brilliant. Just like the, his, uh, the lady that's his assistant. Yeah, just sort of. Even her eyes kind of like <laughs> went up like, oh shit. Yeah, this is coming from someone that looks bored to death in the corner there. And uh, yeah, it just caught me off guard but the story that he told was hilarious about him defecating through the sunroof how do you think howard's view of jimmy has changed if we back it up for a minute earlier when jimmy kind of shows howard all the stuff he was doing for his brother i i think it ties into what i predicted personally about howard's character that his animosity wasn't exactly there jimmy was letting out all out onto him but we never saw it in return and I think there's a great deal of respect when he did see that list, that yeah. shopping list and assistance list, uh, and that realization that, okay, Jimmy's not just doing what uh, Chuck may say, slipping Jimmy things, but he's also desperately helping out his brother and trying to make a living at the same time. You notice time. the detail? I wouldn't have picked it up maybe the first time watching it through, but again, like, Jimmy says, okay, like, especially, okay, you think about Chuck, who's isolated from electricity from power you need refrigeration right so you need ice even that simple line of jimmy saying he had to get ice from a a motel room i mean that shows how desperate he was to try and help take care of his brother because jimmy's not making bank yeah and yet he still goes out of his way to make sure to get the albuquerque newspaper which he talks about all these final details in which we talked about uh, last episode, just some of the sheer amount of things that he does continuously for Chuck, only for the same thing to not be given by his brother, right? Which is, it just makes it that much more heartbreaking. How'd you find out? Did Kim tell you? I figured it out on my own. It's about time, right? You've been doing all of this every day? For over a year. Remember? I used to call you Charlie Hustle. It's not a crime to let it out. There's nothing to let out. Chuck's a sick man. That's no excuse. He's my brother. He thinks I'm a scumbag. There's nothing I can do to change that. Dalai Lama's got nothing on me. It is another B. B, five, as in, boy, this B thing is really starting to tick me off. B as in battleship, B as in bourbon, B as in Belize. 
beautiful place. I would love to go there, but uh, let's face it, that's never going to happen. None of us is ever leaving this godforsaken wasteland. A uh, quick question, who here knows what a Chicago sunroof is? True story, uh, back home, uh, there was this guy named Chet. Now, Chet was a real asshole. He might have owed me some money. He might have slept with my wife before she became my ex-wife. Suffice it to say, I was wrong. Guy wanted some soft serve, I gave him some soft serve. One little Chicago sunroof, and suddenly I'm Charles Manson? I've been paying for it ever since. That's why I'm here! Yeah, so I'll turn things over to me here on the third scene. Uh, we start off this scene, Jimmy needs a break, and we see a vivid Chicago green ribbon taxi sign as Jimmy has made his way to the Windy City. Jimmy has arrived at a bar called Arno's. It is the same one we saw in the opening flashback, and Jimmy walks by and admires an old vehicle, kind of like the one Mike drives, probably from the late 70s by the make, and enters the bar. It's an early afternoon, so the bar is pretty quiet. Jimmy looks at the bar and sees none other than his old friend Marco passed out on the counter. He it looks like he hasn't left his spot that we saw him in the flashback many years ago. Well, this time he's passed out, right? Yeah. He goes to the bartender and asks for two old-style beers, a popular Chicago beer since 1902 under the Paps Blue Ribbon family. Jimmy asks the bartender about Myrna, who used to tend bar, and he says that she is a stepmom. She's doing well. Tell her, slipping Jimmy says hi. Jimmy goes up to Marco and whispers, You gorgeous hunk of a man, how long will you keep me waiting? Wake up, you fat son of a bitch. <laughs> Marco wakes up and can't believe his eyes when he sees Jimmy. Oh, you're, you're back, and you're back in town. So now, of course, Marco and Jimmy are catching up over beers. Marco says, uh, or Jimmy says, I'm not dark enough for you. Marco says he can't believe Jimmy doesn't have a tan. Makes a reference to Anthony Quinn and Lawrence of Arabia. Very famous movie for you cinephiles out there. Also worth noting, it has been 10 years since he has seen Jimmy. Marco has, uh, or Marco asks Jimmy about his brother. Jimmy doesn't really have much to say, obviously. It's a bit of a sore subject. Um... Yeah, Marco has a line, I think something like, speaking of pale sons of bitches or whatever. How's <laughs> yeah, how's your brother doing? Yeah. Right. Um, Marco tells Jimmy he's been working for Lake Michigan Standpipe, his brother-in-law's company, as a maintenance man that works with the fire department, basically on fire hydrants from my understanding of how well, standpipes work. I'd never heard of the thing before this show, but we see Marco cough a few times and he hits his chest before asking Jimmy about his mom. And this is a little interesting detail here. It's a small one, but we learned that Jimmy and Chuck's mom passed away three years ago. The funeral was in Chicago, and Marco is obviously upset that Jimmy didn't look him up at the time. Because um, certainly Marco would have paid his respects at the very least had he known about it. Um, Jimmy asks Marco about the Cutlass parked out front. We learned that that did used to be Jimmy's car. For reference, that was the Oldsmobile line of cars made by General Motors. A lot of people drove those. Um, and Marco has been driving it since Jimmy left. Um, a businessman enters the bar, and Jimmy asks Marco if he's a regular. He is not. The two decide to join together to scam the man over a rare JFK, um, John F. Kennedy, half-dollar coin, or um, not half-dollar, um, 
50 cent 50 cent coin i think it was 50 cents yeah 50 cent coin that is worth 800 dollars according to jimmy's plan uh, jfk is facing west on the coin instead of facing to the right the whole scheme is based around a rogue coin maker issuing a few hundred of these coins with jfk facing west towards the new frontier rather than facing the east after he was assassinated in 1963 symbolizing the american past and the sunrise marco pretends to be the buyer and jimmy the seller of course i'm pretty sure it is a half dollar yeah, it coin. is yeah yeah you buying i'm selling exactly okay so marco talks to the businessman uh, Jimmy goes to the bathroom and he says, oh, this guy's playing me. He tells the businessman he's going to call this coin dealer who, who will assure him that this is a scam. We hear an automated voice on the phone <laughs> as Marco continues the scam. At the tone, the time will be 5.15, something like that, automated message. Um, Jimmy comes out of the bathroom and sure enough, the businessman is taken in by the coin and offers him $110 for the coin that Marco can't match the same offer. Marco and Jimmy celebrate that their con job worked on another stranger. The next round is on them as the scene comes to a close and the two celebrate. Now, I love the detail the writers put into this part of the episode. Uh, in the fourth scene, this will continue as well, but having Jimmy return to Chicago, I think was a really cool twist. And even though this was filmed in Albuquerque, I looked it up at an old German club, I was reading, they throw in a good amount of detail on the Windy City. Jimmy's saying he'll go to a Cubs game, the old style beer. Wabash is a busy street downtown. I've been down before. Marco working for a company called Lake Michigan Standpipe. Sounds like it could be a real business. Um, when you saw this con job, Alex, for the first time, did you think it would work on the businessman or did you think that the stranger would get the better of them? Uh, knowing how charismatic and convincing Jimmy can be, I definitely knew that they could pull it off without a doubt. Uh, and But seeing it, it was no less entertaining, that's for sure. For sure. Yeah. And what do you think about Marco? He, there's been a 10-year gap between Jimmy leaving and coming back. Do you feel like there's a bit of a void for him there? Did he sort of indicate that? Oh, for sure. I mean, I've never really been in a situation where I've ran into somebody for a period of 10 years, like that long, but... I would imagine um, it'd be kind of hard to just catch up when that much time had passed. And I think for both of them, you can see in their facial expressions, it's a little awkward at first. 100%. And I think it's ultimately the con that ends up getting them to be close together, as again, as really good friends as they were. Yeah, bring them back to something that they both used to do. And But it's it just makes me think about the uh, other scene where... He says to Marco, you got to grow up. Yet we see him here at the bar and almost passed out. Right? Some people never change. Some yes. people never change, right? Yeah. He knew exactly where to look for him. So Yeah. The whole, I'll talk about it later, but Marco's character is very much emblematic of a guy you could have on the hit 80s sitcom Cheers. The comedy, it's the bar in Boston where everybody knows your name. It's about all the bar regulars. You know, your norms. For sure. Like, they know what drinks they're going to order beforehand. Like, we saw in the flashback how close Jimmy was with just the bartender with him, but uh, just how well he knew the area. So, 
Yeah, I could for sure see it in the sitcom. Like the uh, the Norms, the Cliffs, the Fraser Cranes, for people who know what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's it's people like that that they've been going to the same bar for ten years more so. You know, it's so it's it's kind of funny, but it's also a little bit sad at the same time. It's just uh, but but hey, yeah, you know that's the way life goes sometimes. Marco, you gorgeous hunk of a man. Wake up, you fat son of a bitch. Bunch of beer. So I'm not dark enough for you, huh? No, no, I'm just saying, I don't see any color. I mean, 10 years in the desert, you should look like uh, Anthony Quinn in Lawrence of Arabia. Turks, they paid me a golden treasure. Yet I am poor because I am a river to my people. <laughs> hey, I'm Irish, okay? I spend my time staying out of the sun. Speaking of pale sons of bitches, how's your brother? Chuck's fine. Still working for him? Sometimes. What about you? I mean, besides falling asleep on a bar at 4 o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon. So what you gonna do while you're here? I don't know. See the sights, you know? Catch a Cubby's game. Bleachers. Get a hot dog at Henry's. All I'm asking is that you take a look. I'm sorry, buddy. No offense. I'm just, you know, I'm not interested. Come on, man. It's gonna hurt to take a look. It'll take you two seconds. Boom. Okay. You see it? I see a Kennedy half dollar. Hey, buddy, I got 75 bucks right here. I, I sorry, I need a hundred. Hey, Slick, nobody's talking to you. Mind your own business, okay? Come on. Cash money, $80. <sighs> if you give me a chance, I'll be back with $100. How long will that be? I don't know. I gotta catch a train, come back, hour, hour, and a half. This guy was getting ready to call no, cops on I what? was not. Why would you do that? Now this guy is making shit up. Hey, I got 110 right here. Sold. No, 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 no. no. This guy's got the cash. No. Don't do there, that. Take care of that. It's history right there. Hey, you can't do that. Hey. Money talks, you lost, it's over. Nah, it's not over. Nah, it's crap. Hey, where do you think you're going, hey, huh? back off, dude. Yeah, back off when you give me the JFK back. Hey, Joey, call the cops. This guy just tried to rip me off. Hey, this guy's a liar. I did not rip anybody off. Yes, you did. You come back in here and your ass is grass. I got friends, buddy. You hear me? You double-dealing bastard. I got friends. <laughs> <laughs> you are so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> hey, everybody, next round's on us. As we move into the fourth scene, things pick up right where they left off. We got a great song choice here. Uh, we, uh, it's a montage of Jimmy and Marco running a series of different scams on the people. And in the background, we hear uh, Bonsai Pipeline from Henry Mancini and his orchestra. This big brass jazz sound. A uh, little background and info on him. He was a very famous jazz composer. He wrote Moon River, a very well-known song by Andy Williams and Barbara Streisand. The theme from Peter Gunn. Um, this track is from 1963, and a lot of jazz music was like this in style at the time. Um, so in this montage, they're running a different series of different scams on people. Um, I copied an excerpt from the episode transcript of some of my favorite lines. 
Jimmy has here right in the opening. Um, he's talking to somebody, and here's Jimmy. He's like, okay, his name is Edie Abasi. He's 27 years old. He's a Nigerian prince. He's worth conservatively $400 million. The dictatorship of Equatorial Ukbar or Beast is detaining him on trumped-up charges. Now the Abasi family, they're going crazy. They will reward whoever helps them to get their boy back. The hitch is the banks have frozen their assets. And so on. And Marco and Jimmy go bar hopping across Chicago, running scams of varying factors and degrees. The editing is so on point, transitioning between the music and the lines and the imagery. Uh, it's a really nice choice all around. Uh, the montage ends with a woman looking down at Jimmy in a room, and she stares at him strangely, kind of confused. Then we hear two of my favorite lines in the whole series. The woman says, You're not Kevin Costner, with Jimmy replying, I was last night. Hey. So for those who don't know what I'm talking about, this is a great Easter egg reference to a line Saul has with Walt on Breaking Bad as he talks about how he once convinced a woman he was Kevin Costner and he and it worked because he believed in himself. He could pull, out, pull it off. Um, obviously the woman slept with Jimmy. We then get a great moment as the woman looks for her friend Lucianne who says, Jimmy is not Kevin Costner and Marco is not Kevin Costner's manager. <laughs> What? He's not a manager? A, a great sequence of humor here is Jimmy has a glass of orange juice. He's sitting back. He relaxes. And these, these women are trying to frantically leave. Jimmy tells them that the door sticks and they can't open the door. And then they leave. And, um, we now know this to be Marco's house. We see Marco. Um, we see his house going back to the flashback from Hero, I believe. It's the fourth episode. Uh, the two of them had just had their con job there. And then they're celebrating or relaxing with uh, the bong and drinks in hand anyway um marco's basement kind of reminds me of mine here so some of our friends we know um, i love the chicago blackhawks blanket we see on the couch and the red and black checkerboard tile floor is very 1980s um jimmy checks his voicemail after a crazy night and sees he has 15 voice messages all senior citizens and clients in need based on their tone over the phone we hear Marco coughing again, and he greets Jimmy saying, what's next? Marco's booked, he's called in sick, you know, he's ready for more fun and adventure. And Jimmy unfortunately tells Marco, look, I got to go back to Albuquerque. It's been a great week. And he tells Marco, look, I'm a lawyer and I have clients. And Marco right away thinks Jimmy was a gigolo at first, which I thought was <laughs> hilarious. Marco says, so you're scamming old people. Jimmy says, no, this is real. You know. Marco says, Slippin' Jimmy is a lawyer. You must be king of the desert, driving around in a white Cadillac, making bank. A little piece of foreshadowing there, as we know Saul, or Jimmy in Breaking Bad, drives a white yep. Cadillac. So I had never know I never really thought about that the first time until seeing this again. Anyway, he's proud of Jimmy here, and Jimmy says, you know. He's making enough for a living. Marco here has an interesting line. If you ain't making bank, you're doing something wrong. Um, and Jimmy says, well, I'm building something. Marco says, why not build it here in Chicago? A lot of lawyers in Chicago make good money. Much bigger city, maybe more opportunity. Yeah. We can talk about that after if you want. But Marco takes out the last Rolex from the drawer. 
makes a funny remark. The man who gave them those back in the day got deported, <laughs> Jin Kang. Uh, Marco says, come on, Jimmy, you got to stick around for one more score. Working with standpipes ain't cutting it day to day for him. Jimmy reluctantly agrees to go along with him one more time here. In a dark alley, similar to the one we see in the flashback to the alley in Hero, we see Marco standing alone against the wall, humming Smoke on the Water. You're, you're uh, call back to that tune again from Deep Purple. He's trying to clear up his cough and looks down the lane. We hear howling in the distance, and we know it's got to be Jimmy with another potential sucker in line for a fake Rolex. Jimmy, again, I love it's the same dialogue here. You do that right at the moment of pure joy, and it'll escalate to a factor of ten. Stranger sees the wallet on the ground as before, and two guys spot um, Marco lying on the ground. Jimmy tries poking him with a stick and can't get a response from his friend. Jimmy frantically tells the stranger to call 911 and says, Marco, are you okay? Obviously, the stranger is surprised that Jimmy's supposed to know this guy. Yeah, he um, runs off. And runs away money. with the wallet. Yeah. Jimmy doesn't know what to do, and he tries pressing on Marco's chest. And uh, Marco kind of stirs up and says to Jimmy, look, this past week has been the best of his life. And sadly, one of Jimmy's best friends passes away from a heart attack. Ending an incredible scene on the show. I'd, I want to give a big shout out. Um, we talked, Alex and I talked about him before we were recording today. Um, the actor who plays Marco Pasternak. Um, Mel the, Rodriguez. Yeah, he does a great job playing this small part over the course of a few episodes. And the connection his character had with Jimmy was really meaningful in my opinion. I was genuinely crushed the first time I saw this. Uh, when the writers killed him off to have him die like that, and even watching it again this past week, um, yeah, it's it's sad. And I mean, ultimately, as Alex has said before, this show is not supposed to be a happy one. At that, certainly, there are moments where characters can get ahead and have their moments, but ultimately, it's a drama. You know, yeah, there's definitely a lot of tragedy involved. For yeah, sure. and. But I, just when you were talking here, I just thought about it, actually. Yeah. I don't know. They are definitely close, and they're incredibly good friends. But I can't help but think, over the course of the week that they were gone, uh, sorry, Jimmy was o over here in Chicago. Yeah. Uh, he'd never once mentioned beforehand that he was a lawyer during all that time. No. At the very end. Uh, and it's, a, it's a good point. Yeah, it just makes me think that... They're more friends of circumstance than they were just good friends. Perhaps like the same way in which you're friends with someone you used to know, right? Yeah. Just like, uh, but but Marco's reaction, I think, is real. Oh, I, for sure. I yeah, he's he is happy proud for of his you. friend. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly is, but I can't help but feel that he's a friendship of the past, if that makes sense. He's yeah. still into Jimmy's eyes. I think maybe part of the reason why it didn't come up sooner. Well, I mean, I'm just speculating the unknown, but because we're not the writers, but Jimmy's ashamed of his relationship with Chuck. Like, that's not a thing to be happy about at the moment. And then he's kind of forgetting about his association with the bar. 100%. Like, the, he just came from such a sore situation. Like, yeah. in, the ver in the last scene where they were talking, he didn't want to bring up Chuck, right? Whereas uh, he asked about his brother. So certainly that could play into it. But I just thought that was an interesting note. 
Have any questions here? What did you What did you make of the montage at the beginning of the scene? Did you enjoy it? I thought it was very well done for multiple reasons. Great song choices you stated before. I thought it was a great way of uh, condensing what happens in within that week, but also showing it slip by as well. And it sort of blended together one con to an, from another, and it gave some entertaining highlights, such as the Nigerian prince. And I had a breakdown here of some of the scam descriptions. Uh, just some lines here. I'm talking Irish sweeps tickets, a whole trunk full of them. They're just sitting at O'Hare, Chicago's airport, impounded in customs. But you got to understand, this violin is my livelihood. It's a valuable <laughs> antique. That makes me think of an episode of The Simpsons, actually. But um, what do you mean it doesn't belong to you? I'll pay 900 bucks for this. But I know this customs officer. I'm all about investments. And then later, hey, kid, help me get my wife's car out of this bad neighborhood. <laughs> right? And then Jimmy, like, pretending to be a blind man, I guess. Sir, sir, could you help me? Tell me, are these today's numbers? You just get more and more outrageous as they go along. And then, like, later, he had to find a way to get money into the country without anyone knowing. He coated the cash with this black stuff, uh, Vectral paste, and the only way to get it off is with this special chemical. You know the guy with uh, in Dances with Wolves? That's when he's talking to the girls. Um, Kevin Costner was in that movie, of course. And interesting note, according to uh, Peter Gould, all the scams depicted in this episode are based on real-life cases. <laughs> That's funny enough. And yeah. it's a shame that they all worked to a degree, but it's just huh. funny seeing them in action here on the show oh. and showing how outrageous some of them can be. Hey. Hey. <laughs> you are not Kevin Costner. I was last night. Can I interest you ladies in some mimosas? Please stick around long enough to get dressed. Oh, screw you. Uh, so what's it gonna be today, pal? I'm up for anything and everything. A week's gonna have to do it. I gotta go home. My clients. Clients? What are you, what are you like a gigolo or something? <laughs> I'm a lawyer. Holy crap. Slippin' Jimmy's a lawyer? <laughs> no wonder you want to go back. I mean, you gotta be king of the desert driving around town in a white caddy making bank. I'm not making bank. I'm making a living, more or less. A living? All due respect, you're a lawyer and you're not making bank. You're doing it wrong. Well, I'm building something. Chuck's in Albuquerque. Again, all due respect. Chuck's a stuck-up douchebag. I hate to break it to you, but he doesn't even like you. Remember this? The Rolex thing. Whatever happened to the guy who used to sell us those? Jen Kang? He got deported. This is the last one. I can lend you some cash. I don't need the money, Jimmy. I need this. Come on, you say you're happy doing wills or whatever. Good for you, man. Seriously. I gotta tell you, standpipes ain't cutting it for me. I got nothing, Jimmy. Give me this. Marco, Marco, you with me? You with me? Oh, oh you, did, you did good, buddy. Just hold on, all right? They're on their way. They'll be here in a minute. Jimmy, you know what? Just save your breath, okay? You're gonna be fine. This was the greatest week of my life.
final scene, scene five. The camera opens to a distant sh distanced shot of an older brick funeral home as we see Jimmy step out of the entrance dressed in a black suit. I think it's a church, yeah. Yeah, church. You hear the organ. Yeah. Uh, an old acquaintance of Jimmy's, who we do not know, is having a smoke at the entrance already and hands over another cigarette to Jimmy at his request. He notices Marco's ring on Jimmy's left pinky finger, and Jimmy explains that his mother gave it to him. He's not much of a ring guy, but decides to wear it in Marco's honor. As the acquaintance leaves to go back inside, Jimmy receives a phone call from Kim asking for Ferris Bueller, uh, calling to check in on Jimmy's day off. <laughs> uh, he says over the week he's gotten everything out of his system, and Kim introduces some huge news. HHM cannot handle the case alone, so they're uh, working to unite with another law firm called Davis and Maine. And they're extremely interested in having an interview with Jimmy himself. If all goes well, he could potentially be looking at a partnership deal dedicated to working on his own case. With his own office, yeah. Yeah, at everything he wanted, right? Jimmy's skeptical here, thinking this is just a charity maneuver or just pulling some prank on him. But Kim reassures him, stating that this is real. All the clients Jimmy worked with previously couldn't help but continue asking about him. We got that small impression of the last scene of the messages left on his phone, and surely when they talk to him, they continue to say such positive things. The impression they gave off must have been very good about Jimmy's character and had a huge influence. As they hang up, the screen transitions over to Chuck's house. He's talking with a new character who's looking like a younger staff member from HHM. Chuck is finishing giving him instructions on what to do with the case files and congratulates him for almost getting everything on the grocery list right. Keyword being almost. Yeah, it's definitely something Chuck would do. Oh, of course. Yeah. Uh, Chuck naturally starts to go on about the minute details of how and what he exactly likes. Granny Smith apples are too tart. He wants the red ones, but not certain type of red ones. Red ones are tasteless. Yeah. He makes uh, it quite clear that this is a very small thing, but it needs to get done. As the staff member from HHM leaves and starts to load everything into his vehicle, he notices Jimmy in his own and runs over. Jimmy knows his staff member who is introduced as Ernie and thanks him for looking after his brother and hopes that Chuck's doing well. As they're talking, Chuck peeps out the window and sees Jimmy parked. After Jimmy and Ernie's short exchange, the latter has to take off and Jimmy uh, stays parked in his vehicle outside a bit longer. Chuck continues to watch Jimmy's car and reaches for the door but is indecisive as to whether to go out or not. After a couple of moments, the decision is made for him, and Jimmy starts his vehicle and takes off, leaving Chuck to himself. Lastly, we go over to Mike in the toll booth, working on, the, uh, working on a crossroad and talking on the phone as he notices Jimmy's vehicle enter the court's parking lot. Jimmy pulls into a spot and gets out, prepping himself by looking in the mirror and practicing what he's going to say. He walks over to the courts and... As he's talking to himself, he slowly starts to uh, slow down yeah. and eventually comes to a stop. Here, he starts to fiddle with Marco's ring as he stands there in the quiet, almost having a debate with himself. We then see him in his vehicle race to Mike's station. Well, that was a quick charge. Uh, sorry, that was quick. No charge. Help me out here. Did I dream it? Or did I have $1,000,000, 600000 on my desk in cash? 
Jimmy and Mike have this exchange, and Jimmy is just flabbergasted and stunned at the fact that he had all this money, but so dismayed over the fact that he never took anything. Like, what stopped us? Like, what did I do? I, I seem to recall you saying you were doing the right thing. <laughs> but, um, like, he wants to know about Mike. Well, me, personally, I was hired to do a job, and that's as far as it goes. And uh, Jimmy doesn't like that whatsoever. He's like, okay, I know what uh, stopped me, and that's not going to stop me again. So we see Jimmy race off as he starts humming to himself and uh, and tapping uh, on his steering wheel, smoke and water, as the first season comes to a close. I want to run something by you. The sandpiper case? It's getting too big for HHM. Howard's decided to partner with another firm. Davis and Maine, you heard of them? Sure, up in Santa Fe. Right. Well, they've heard of you too. And they're interested. They want to make you an offer contingent on an interview. They've got a partner track position in mind. Wait, wait what? Partner track? What are you talking about? I'm talking about there's an office in Santa Fe with your name on it. Or there could be. And you'd be working on your case. Chuck has no say in this. You wouldn't be working for HHM, and Chuck can't tell Davis and Maine who to hire. Why me? Is this like a tax write-off, a charity thing? What's the angle on Jimmy, we've been talking to your clients, the Sandpiper residents, and they ask about you every chance they get. I don't know what it is, but you have a way with them. <laughs> hey, old people love me. Kim, I can't imagine what you did to make this happen. Thank you. That didn't do anything. Much? And believe it or not, Howard's been pushing this, too. Good old Howard. Listen, we're going to be down in Judge Murray's court on Thursday at 11. The Davis and Maine people will be there. It'll be the perfect chance for you to meet them. Thursday at 11. All right, I'll be there. Well, that was quick. No charge. Help me out here. Did I dream it? Or did I have $1,600,000 on my desk in cash? No one on God's green earth knew we had it. We could have split it 50-50. We could have gone home with $800,000 each, tax-free. Why didn't we? What stopped us? I remember you saying something about doing the right thing. Me personally, I was hired to do a job. I did it. It's as far as it goes. Yeah. Well, I know what stopped me. You know what? It's never stopping me again. Well said, Alex. Yeah, it's. I, I almost think it's kind of interesting. Jimmy almost looks directly at the camera, and I think he, he's, well, he's smiling, and he kind of has almost a bit of a wink as he drives off in the distance as we hear, yet again, Smoke on the Water by Deep Purple. Must be a favorite of uh, Peter and Vince on the series. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting... I want to get your thoughts on this actually just popped up in my head here if we look at between episode 9 and 10 the way episode 9 ends with Jimmy driving away from Chuck's house had they wanted to I feel like that almost could have been a season finale on its own because we don't know then then you don't know what happens to Jimmy you don't know where he goes what he's gonna do in that time what do you think of episode 10 sort of being if episode nine was the climax of the season with Jimmy and Chuck finally having that face-to-face, -face, but, okay, look, Chuck's been the real puppeteer this whole time. 
He's been the one who's saying, I don't want my younger brother working at the firm. We get that climax, and then episode 10 is kind of like a falling action. That's the way I kind of see it. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Does episode 10 sort of feel a little different from, maybe because a lot of it's predicated on Chicago? or For sure. I feel like, to me personally, I feel like the last episode was the conflict, and here's more the resolution. Only the fact that it's not decisive one way or another. We get hints it's uh, the ways that it could go here. There's so many things. like um, it, There's a partnership opportunity for Jimmy here. And we see that after all of his hard work... Why is he driving away? Finally, someone takes the opportunity and notices him. Yeah, But yeah, exactly. He then has this decision to not follow through with it and it leaves this question of what's going with his character right yeah we don't quite know and to me it comes off as very uh indecisive for him so there's multiple ways i can see that going but yeah no this is definitely not the build-up not the cliffhanger here whereas that's the last episode but it doesn't finish everything um yeah, it's it's worth noting in the in our final episode of the first season, Jimmy's taking the ring um, is kind of symbolic of his decision to do whatever it takes to make money. As Alex had said, it's not stopping me again. And also worth noting, this is the same ring that Jimmy, as under the persona of Saul Goodman, wore on his hand pretty much the entire time of Breaking Bad. You can look at that a couple ways. You know, it's like uh, as I had said. He's going to do whatever it takes to make a few bucks, or a lot of bucks, you know. Also symbolizes, I think, Jimmy's friendship that he had with Marco, obviously. That was a close connection. Um, just some interesting things to note uh, here. In the beginning of today's discussion, we talked about uh, Jimmy and Mike, where they've evolved. Um, some Easter egg references from the whole season. Things that have happened on Breaking Bad, or you can tie together... Um, the Saul Goodman commercials we see in the first episode. Uh, Gene, it's really Jimmy, working at Cinnabon, as he had said he'd probably end up there at the end of Breaking Bad. Jimmy beating up the garbage can in the first episode is a reference to Walt beating up a mirror, when I believe when Walt's learning about his cancer diagnosis. Um, the whole Kevin Costner bit, as I joked about earlier, Jimmy has that conversation with Walt. Tuco's appearance, of course, with his gang, Gonzo and Nodos, and at this time in Better Call Saul, Nacho. Um, B7 is a nod to um, Tuco's, or Tuco Salamanca's um, uncle, Tio Salamanca, when he's in the old folks' home. Uh, later on, he's disabled, he's, in, he's handicapped, he's in the wheelchair. Uh, they're bingo being played in his home in Breaking Bad. It's in the same episode where Walt comes up to Tio and uh, talks to him and says, this is my plan and how I'm going to go after Gus. This is getting way, way down the line. Um, Jimmy talking about Belize. Jimmy has a conversation with Walt about making somebody disappear to Belize. And he says Belize in the bingo hall. The nail salon, of course, and Mike's past history as a police detective gets referenced. Um, later on in one of the last seasons of Breaking Bad, Jimmy's defending Mike and... Hank and his partner Gomez are talking about Mike's past. Oh, I see you were a cop in Philadelphia. Well, we were given that whole episode to learn about that. And then finally, um, Leola's restaurant, or Loyola's, I'm not sure you pronounce it. I think it's Leola's. Uh, the diner we see 
Mike having uh, food at it a few times. It appears multiple times on Breaking Bad and will be back. Jimmy goes there as well. Yeah. It seems to be crammed for a huge confrontation, that place. But Yeah. yeah. Any more Easter eggs there? No, uh, that was my thoughts on, on there. What, what did you want to talk about predictions-wise, Alex? Oh, uh, prediction-wise, just um, there's so much we can talk about here. Uh, do you think, like, sort of what was going on through Jimmy's head at the end there, and how do you think it ties into what he'll continue in future? So why do you think he walked away from that interview? And how do you think that would uh, tie into his character continuing onwards? Without referencing what happens in the second season, it's really hard to figure out what Jimmy's going to do going forward. Um, When I first saw this, I almost thought, is Jimmy going to give up the law? Is he going to give it up altogether? Is he going to just try and find something else new to do with his life to try and make money? Is he going to start scamming people in Albuquerque, you know, um, symbolic of the ring? Um, it's it's hard to say what he wants to do because, yes, he has turned over his case to HH&M. He's got that of counsel fee, and that's kind of all set up. Why would you walk away from something like Davis and Maine? Um, that's going to be a very key talking point for the second season, Um about Jimmy's identity with what he really wants in life. I don't know if we get so much of that in the first season. I think in the first season, Jimmy's trying to find himself. Uh, we do get a small quip right uh, in the last scene here where it, um, Kim introduces the concept and he says, well, Chuck's not going to like that. Yeah. So I think the first season is more about Jimmy trying to find himself and build up a brand and as we get into the second season, we'll have more dis- discussions about what does Jimmy really want out of his life, um, if he, you know, assuming he stays in law. Uh, mm. Yeah. And uh, talking about his life, uh, I find it very interesting. We earlier we we're talking about him processing some of these emotions he's having of just these incredible events happening in his life, but here in the last scene, we also have the fact that his best friend just died and someone incredibly close to him came and calls and asked how he's doing and his best friend was not mentioned at all and when she's talking about whatever you've got I's, have you got everything out of your system he just sort of throws a cigarette on the ground stomps him and just like yeah it's all gone Jimmy, symbolizing his best friend just passing and that's it yeah it's it's a little it's a little sad that way I don't I don't know if Jimmy processes grief very well. Uh, there's a for people who have seen Better Call Saul, you know where I'm going with that. A few seasons down the line, but yeah. <laughs> um, we won't go that far on the show in our discussion today. But it's a, it's a good point by Alex. Um, there's a big shift there. You've had someone just pass away, and immediately um, hearing about a job opportunity back where you are. Um, Jimmy knew he was going to go back. Like he wasn't. There wasn't really anything for him in Chicago. Yeah, he um, won two beforehand as well. Yeah, he has whatever he has left with Chuck there. He has Kim. He likes Kim. You know, Kim likes Jimmy too as well. Um, but uh, yeah. Oh, um, and I found it incredibly interesting, despite the huge uh, events of last episode with the conflict between Chuck and Jimmy and how their brotherhood sort of shattered to a degree. He's still looking after, looking after his brother here, making sure that 
Howard gets the entire list of everything that needs to happen. For, uh, make sure his day to day is covered. And still he checks up on this brother himself. Jimmy, personally. between the two characters, Jimmy is showing he's the bigger man in the yeah. situation. Which and. really is something to say, I guess. Um, yeah, you see Jimmy looking outside from his car at Chuck's house. And Chuck does see Jimmy's car parked down the street. And there kind of is that moment where you think, is Chuck going to maybe open up his door and call out to his younger brother? We don't get that. But it does leave the door open to see where the two of them uh, will meet up again in, in the second season. Yeah, mm. for sure. And... Just some um, quick little things here. We made the prediction last episode, and it turned out to be true that uh, with Jimmy apologizing to Kim, whether that would happen and what sort of reaction there would be. And just as we said, um, Kim was very quick to forgive Jimmy here. Like, she knew the whole situation was just that a situation that wasn't true of his character. So, um, despite everything going on, she yeah, knew he would be better without Chuck here. And, if he learned the truth. but Yeah, there's an interesting line earlier where Jimmy's a little disappointed in Kim, I think, and he says, if it's what the second scene, I think, how come you didn't yeah. tell me? Jimmy trusts Kim with, I, like, personal information like that. Like, you know, so I don't, I don't think Jimmy would have been as upset if he would have heard about this from Kim. If Kim would have given him that warning saying, like, look, like, your brother's meddling in your affairs a lot more than you think we don't get that but well obviously jimmy finds out the truth but yeah, yeah no for sure and this is our season finale of uh, just both the show and our own podcast here what was some of the standouts for you uh, comedic wise uh, throughout the season would you say uh i think talking about uh in alpine shepherd boy when jimmy has his various clients who had a lot of fun talking about you know, going to see the libertarian out in the desert who wants to secede from the union and um, all the different seniors kind of have their own little uh, quips about them. You know, uh, I've got the Alpine Shepherd boy, you know, those, those figurines. And uh, she's slowly coming down the uh, watching Jimmy try and find himself a brand. Uh, an image to the seniors whether it's dressing as Matlock now as we see in several episodes I oh, uh, enjoyed a lot um, yeah it was great to re-watch the first season of the show that I hadn't seen in a couple of years I'd watched some parts of episodes from time to time especially how can you not re-watch Mike's scene interacting with uh, Stephen Ogg's character on the show out in the parkade in the previous episode Pimento what are you packing you know? Uh, I won't get back into that. You can watch our ninth episode in the series. Hear our thoughts again on that. But uh, And I really enjoyed our first two episode discussions on the cliffhanger with Tuco taking Jimmy hostage and seeing how it unfolded out in the desert. That's still in my mind one of the best moments in the whole series. And um, We'll see if we see anything more of Jimmy interacting with the cartel soon. Yeah, I think for sure that sort of ties into the fact, even though we have mentioned that this is a rather slow burn series, it does have some moments that stand out for sure. Even in the first season here, we have the second episode he's talked about in the desert. We had the Alpine Shepherd Boy events with uh, the estranged clientele. 
and also have Five O Mike's Pass. There's just so many moments that just of course. in the Kettleman's that just like really rewatching it to just bring a lot of things back for me and just how can I not remember these standout moments from time to time. So. And and it's a show as we've said before where it's really meticulous to detail and they're trying to give as much context as they can to almost everything. Sometimes maybe people would say it's too much. Maybe we don't need all of these flashbacks. You know, everyone's got a different opinion, but um, it's all building towards where they wanted to have things go leading up to Breaking Bad. And I remember when I first saw this series, the big question was, Alex had talked about it earlier before we started recording today, how much time did they want to actually cover in this first season this is 2002. Breaking Bad starts around, let's say, 2008 to 2007-ish. You know, um, so they've got five, six years they have to cover. This was not a full year, this first season. You know, um, if this was like a real, if this was like a, like your Law and Order or your CSI, like crime dramas, where you're like a full year passes, you know, um, this is a much slower pace. So that's one of the toughest challenges I think people like Vince and Peter have had to deal with in how to move it forward. Um, and yeah, we'll see as we go into the second season how that pace changes. If things are moving too slow, um, people have varying opinions on this. I remember when they announced they were making the El Camino movie, a follow-up to Breaking Bad. There are some people I know who really enjoyed it, and there's some people I know who didn't really like it at all and felt like it was just you know maybe two more filler episodes of Breaking Bad that we get tacked on at the end um, that the pace in that movie was just too slow for what they were trying to do I won't get into the details of the movie it is worth watching for sure but um, yeah yeah and you mentioned their attention to minute details and even with the pacing with contained within the first season here I think it sort of speaks volumes to itself such as in the second episode we have the huge events of the desert um, life-threatening Jimmy himself almost gets capped let alone the two brothers who knees ended up getting capped the skateboard and that exact same night he ended up going out on a date and having to throw up in the bathroom because is reminded of such recent events scarred into his brain, of course. Yeah. But it puts into perspective and hints at the fact that, okay, he's not very good at dealing with these situations. You said uh, he's not very good at dealing with grief earlier, and here he's not very taking that time to process, right? It's like he's immediately going on to the next thing, and he can't get it out of his head just like no normal person would be able to. No, and that's a good point. Uh, Alex, if we compare Jimmy and Mike in the beginning of the season, as we talked about, Mike's kind of got this routine where he's working at the parking garage. Well, it's not a garage, but the uh, the parking lot, you know, as an attendant. His 9 to 5 is very similar day in, day out. Jimmy's is for a little bit. We kind of, you know, he's working as a public defender in the courthouse, defending all different kinds of criminals and people. Um, but then, as we see things pick up, as he's our protagonist, his day-to-day completely changes all the time. It's exhausting. He's going from out in the cartel, out in the desert with them, trying to de-escalate a situation he put himself in, to um, going out on a date, as Alex had just said, 
running himself dry, basically, like putting up a billboard and getting into a dispute with Howard that he knows he wasn't going to win. He has his publicity stunt. He has to try and resolve the Kettleman case. Um, later on, he has to help defend Mike, and I don't think he really likes, he doesn't want to be an accessory to a cop who's just taken evidence. Yeah. You know? And then in the last few episodes now, he's built up a really interesting uh, class action lawsuit, and his relationship with his brother has quickly gone downhill. There's, like the song, uh, Cage the Elephant, Ain't No Rest for the Wicked. Oh, for sure. And I think we get a small uh, snippet of that, um, such as normal person would react with, with Howard this episode when he looks at that grocery list. And this isn't even shown on the screen previously besides him bringing in the groceries and ice bags, but just the fact that he's flabbergasted, like, you do this every single day? And we don't even see that, let alone all these other events that are transpiring in his life. It's just, yeah, no, it's, it is a show grounded in reality. And, of course, there are some dramatizations, but it's like, even so, a regular person wouldn't be able to handle all this going on at once. So, yeah, yeah man of miracles to a degree. No, that's well said. Thank you guys for tuning in to today's episode. We had a blast covering this first season for you as this new startup project. Uh, we're happy to be broadcasting here on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Google Podcasts, and more. You can check us out. Um, yeah, it's been a thrill over these 10 short weeks. It's gone by really quick. It's going to be the end of March here in Winnipeg. We've got some great weather, as I said. We've been recording on another beautiful Saturday afternoon as we move into April. And Season 2 will be right around the corner, folks. Uh, we're excited to keep moving Better Call Saul along and Maybe we'll have a few updates on the production of Season 6 that is currently underway and they're working in New Mexico. And it's been a awesome uh, experience uh, building up a base of listenership, guys. And we thank you for tuning in. And we hope you can join us on their continued journey through all these seasons. Yeah, and with hopefully some more surprises to come. So I hope you guys found some entertainment in this podcast, learned something new, got a couple of laughs, and... Hope to see you next season. Yeah, we'll talk to you guys soon. Take care. Awesome. Take care. I'd like to give a big shout out to all of our listeners of The Truth Is How You Look At It that tuned in to the first season of our show. It's been a great project so far over these 10 weeks, and I can't wait jump right into season two of Better Call Saul. Our show's theme is The House, recorded by Adrian Berenger, and music featured on the show tonight was Keeper by Enrico De Lucia, Why by Emmanuel D'Antoni, Sweet Memory by Bobby Cole, Beyond by Roberto Diana, and Loney Dusty Trail by Jonathan Mogavero, which I've also featured in our closing credits for today's episode. I thought it'd be nice to mix it up a little bit. Until then, as Tracy Lawrence said, time marches on. We'll catch you all on the flip side. The Truth is How You Look at It is a Bernanke and Krauss production.